Hi folks, Tony Beadle here. Thanks for joining the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. In today's episode, Nick Calcaterra and I talked to Gabriel Swinney. Gabriel is an attorney with 11 years of experience in the U.S. State Department's Office of the Legal Advisor. He works on a number of issues, including international law and space law. In today's podcast, we discuss hot topics in space law, which include privately funded space exploration, weapons in space, liability issues in space, and the future of space law. We hope you enjoy our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. What exactly made you interested in the law and particularly your focus on space? Sure. Um, well, I went to space camp twice as a kid. So, <laughs> nice. um, yeah. Every so, child's dream. Yeah. So, growing up in the Midwest, Nick and I were not as <laughs> lucky to go down to Florida. Well, I'm from Tennessee, so we, uh, we were able to drive down to Huntsville pretty easily. Awesome. Um, so, you know, space has always been, it's been one of my passions. I mean, it's cheesy to say it's one of your passions, but it really mm-hmm. has been, mm-hmm. you know pretty clearly since the beginning. Um, you had a briefcase and you had to do something with it. Exactly, yeah, and so I've been doing international law now for years, and I always had in the back of my mind the idea that I would get back to doing outer space things. So I like to think of you know my career until now as, as training for this, doing other things that have given me the tools I need to really be a, a better space lawyer than I otherwise would have been. So what does an average day look like at the uh, State Department? <laughs> um, there's, you know, every day is different, which is the best part about about the job. I do I do everything from going and meeting with counterparts at NASA or the FAA um, to meeting with with private industry, right? So, spend a lot of time sitting with general counsels of space companies or satellite manufacturers, um, and then I represent the United States internationally. So I travel around the world, go to United Nations um, meetings, and sit at the chair behind the United States placard, which is pretty much my favorite thing to do. Oh, yeah. There's not there's not much cooler <laughs> than sitting behind uh, the placard that says the United States. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and negotiating on our behalf to explain our views to the world and to try to promote you know, our U.S. national interest as well as those of our commercial sector. Excellent. So uh, any recent events have happened over the last uh, year or so that you've attended? And yeah. Can you explain? kind of talk generally about uh, what sort of uh, topics were being discussed? Sure. I think um, maybe one of the most interesting things was last April. Um, I, I led our delegation to the UN, the legal subcommittee of the UN Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, which is this very long title, but it really is just the sort of the international committee that gets together and talks about space law stuff. So you've got a whole bunch of countries that come together for a couple weeks every April, and sort of work through the present state of space law. You know, what you can do in outer space, what you can't. Are there questions, are there activities that someone's sort of pushing the bounds and we need to think through? Um, So last year we we talked about mining asteroids, frankly. Mm -hmm. Mining asteroids on the moon was the big topic. And you know, you've probably seen in the news, there's a couple of US-based companies that really want to do this. And they're not, they're not there physically yet in terms of actually getting to the asteroids, but they're really working on their technology. And so a number of countries around the world have, have questioned whether that's something that, that's legal, right? That whether if they went out and mined asteroids, whether that somehow um, is, is taking resources that belong to the whole world or belong to everyone, or whether maybe, to put it more mildly, maybe we need to have conversations as an international community before they go ahead and do that. So we've taken the really strong view that um, we don't need to have those conversations, that it's legal. These are private companies that we'll keep an eye on as, as the United States. 
um, but that they have a right to go do those things. So we spend a lot of time promoting that view internationally right now. And so let's back up just a little bit. When mm-hmm. we're talking about space law, what exactly are we talking about? I think that our listeners have some conception of domestic law being states making their own laws or federal law. But is that really what we're talking about when it's going to the moon to mine? No, that's a great question. You know, outer space is, is a weird place. It's weird because it's, it's physically different, but it's also weird because it's not part of any country. And even though you, know, you could sort of think of it as being above our heads, it's not really. It's sort of all around us. And the way that we as humanity, we as people, have, have dealt with that fact is by coming together, um, many different countries together, and negotiating, sitting around tables and negotiating out sets of rules, very basic rules that will um, be the law that regulates how we, how we do things in outer space. Right? And these are all written down in treaties. Um, these were negotiated for the most part during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. So you have the Outer Space Treaty and then a few others that are a little more, a little more detailed. But it's really this Outer Space Treaty, which, as I said, was between us, the Soviets, and then at this point a whole bunch of other countries that sets out the basic rules of the road. So it's like a, you know, it's just a handful of rules, you know, say, pretty much do what you want in outer space except for these things. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really sort of the legal rules that we operate under and that we make sure that our commercial actors operate under as well. So why do lawyers kind of matter in this domain? Uh, what kind of contributions uh, can individuals, lawyers make, such as yourself? Yeah, I, sort of in two ways. One, I think, is to, to make sure that our companies and our, our national activities as well, right? Because the United States does lots of things as a country in outer space, too. Um, one is to make sure that we have the certainty that we can operate in the way we think we can operate. What I mean by that is, you know, if you plan on sending up a communication satellite, your AT&T or a cable company or something, you want to send up a communication satellite, you need to know if you're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this satellite to, to build it and get it up there, that it's not going to go up there and have some other company from some other country mm-hmm. use the exact same radio frequency mm-hmm. or try to stick a satellite in the same physical location and they crash into each other and knock each other apart. And so you need to have some certainty that there's going to be some basic rules of the road um, because space is fragile, right? It's, fi- it's a physically fragile place. So you have to have some rules just like you do on the highway when you're zooming down, you know, going 65, 70 miles an hour. You need rules so that your little steel can doesn't crash into other steel cans going down the road. Space is just like that, except you're going a lot faster and things cost a lot more money. Now, earlier you mentioned some of the red lines of the OST. What exactly are those and what what are those red lines or prohibited activities that are particularly relevant in today's climate? Sure. So the treaty came out of the Cold War. So you have some that clearly reflect that history. Like you can't put weapons of mass destruction in outer space. And so you can't you can't launch smallpox a smallpox satellite. Right? Every Bond villain's fantasy. Absolutely. Yeah. So basically, the James Bond villains are are off the table. No laser on the moon. No lasers on the moon. <laughs> is and yeah. So um, are there any weapons that are allowed in outer space? Conventional weapons are allowed in, in in orbit and floating around in outer space. And then whether you can put them on the moon is a little bit more of a difficult question. WMD are out, but um, as far as other rules, um, you can't claim space as national territory. Right, so even though we've pla- we've placed U.S. flags on the moon, that doesn't make the moon part of America. Just like if another country um, went and did the same thing on Mars, if, if Great Britain went to Mars and planted the you know British flag, it wouldn't become part of Great Britain. 
So that's, those are a couple of the sort of fundamental rules. There's a few others, but for the most part, it's a system that says you can do what you want to do as long as you aren't impacting the interests or getting in the way of others. So uh, you mentioned in your talk earlier today that they recently resurrected the National Space Council. Can you describe what's, what sort of work and how do you engage with the National Space Council? Yeah, so last summer the, um, the administration established the National Space Council, which is this group of you know, sort of the heads of agencies, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, all headed by the Vice President to get together and coordinate space policies for the country. Um, so what I do and what my lawyer colleagues do at other agencies is we provide the guidance behind the scenes. Right? If there's a question about what are the rules that, that would limit what we can do, or if there's a way to, to use law to help advance U.S. interests, to go negotiate a new treaty, or to think through what the implications would be, we provide that guidance behind the scenes to the vice president and other, other sort of high-level officials. I think you mentioned earlier that also um, the National Space Council was dissolved in the early 90s, so it's been you know a decade or so. Why do you think the Trump administration is now resurrecting it? Well, I, I don't know why they chose this moment, except to say that there's a lot happening in outer space, right? Outer space for many years has been a pretty predictable place. You've got communication satellites, and you had some Earth observation satellites, and then you had national activities, right? Where space agencies like NASA went up and did things. Now we have all these other actors, right? We have lots of small satellites being sent up by universities, some even by non-governmental organizations. We have SpaceX, which just launched a car into outer space um, and plans to have a, a Martian colony. We have companies that want to establish habitats on the moon. There's some companies that are very, very close right now to sending up satellites that can literally go around with robotic arms and work on other satellites. So all this new, new stuff is happening that raises much more complicated questions. And so I do think it's appropriate. Now is a good time to make sure that everyone's in the room as we think through how, how to deal with this new world. And when we talk about private entities occupying this space that was previously dominated by maybe only a handful of countries, a handful of sovereigns, what are those new issues that we can anticipate? It sounds like a lot of your work is being proactive and anticipating these issues. So what are the issues you're particularly focused on? Yeah, absolutely. One question is, as space becomes cheaper and as there's more and more sort of private money going into outer space, you start seeing countries and companies getting involved that we've never seen before. So for example, there's a, a company called Rocket Lab, which is a US-based company, but it launches small satellites from New Zealand from a launching facility in New Zealand. Um, is this so a micro satellite? They're, they're small satellites, yeah. right. They're very small satellites on relatively small rockets. We need to work through collaboratively with New Zealand some rules about who is going to make sure those satellites aren't doing something nefarious, right? Make sure that there's not a tiny nuclear weapon or smallpox mm -hmm. or, you know, I joke those are sort of the easy rules, but that also that they don't crash into things yeah. or, you know, decide who's going to put them in a registry so everyone else knows where these satellites are. So that's one question. It's just now that you've got all these new actors, who's in charge and who has the oversight role? Um, the other one is, as you say, being proactive and making sure that whatever freedom we want our companies to have doesn't create a precedent that would be damaging overall. Because as I said, space is a very fragile place and any, you know, if one of our companies created space debris or if 
some company from another another country created space debris. That affects us all, right? And so those are the kinds of things we really need to not have to be reactive for. We need to anticipate those problems before they happen. And so that's, you're absolutely right. We spend a lot of time thinking ahead, um, trying to be good lawyers and, and fix problems before they happen. So if something did go wrong, something did happen, what sort of bodies would have interest or even power to, um, I guess, assign liability and look at restitution and things like that? This especially is, in the, sorry, but in the, especially in the context of uh, these smaller actors where you can't, it's not just sanctioning another country anymore, it's dealing with this corporation that's housed in X country. Yeah, this is one of the sort of frontiers of, of, of where we are right now. I mean, there's insurance, right? Almost every country requires its private companies to get insurance of different types when they go into outer space and do things. Um, whether that insurance is sufficient to cover the types of damage that can be caused or you know who can get paid, all of those are rules that are not consistent. And maybe they don't need to be consistent, um, but all those questions really do need to be worked through because I, I think your question's a good one. We don't necessarily have a great set of answers yet. But one thing that's unique about space is that now we am speaking on behalf of all of us, we, the, the American people, are on the hook for what our private companies do in outer space. One thing that's pretty clear in the Outer Space Treaty is that we have national responsibility, is how it's phrased, which means that whatever our companies do, if they do something wrong, they break the law in outer space, other countries can, uh, can take it up with us, America. So it's a great question. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how to answer it. Because mm-hmm. we have some companies with with uh, profits that exceed the GDPs of smaller countries, and it seems like there's potential for exploitation. It's possible. Um, I think the the potential solutions are there too, right? You know, the some of this has been solved in other sectors, right? Insurance and placing bonds and subrogation and all kinds of sort of legal tools that lawyers use to to allocate risk. We can deploy those in outer space, too. We just haven't really worked through. And frankly, it's not necessarily anyone's fault. These are just such new, um, newly proposed activities. And for some of them, how do you judge the risk, right? Just as a matter of math, how do you judge the potential loss? Or how often, how do you judge how often an instance gonna, is, is going to occur that's never occurred to date? Historically, one of the things that we've always analogized to space is the seas, particularly the the days of, you know, people believing in krakens out there and who knows what's in the, you know, where the sun sets. It's a complete mystery. Is that an effective analogy for understanding it from a legal perspective? Well, first of all, I hope there are kraken in outer space. <laughs> um, I absolutely yeah. hope that, <laughs> there are giant, that there are giant squid, <laughs> yeah. squid creatures out in outer space. Um, setting that part aside, uh, setting the monsters aside, which, which fingers crossed, the analogy is not totally wrong, but it's, it's pretty misleading, right? You know, it's all about exploration and all about places that aren't part of countries. So I think that's, that's a useful analogy as far as it goes. But the oceans are places we've been a long time, right? And if you have a problem in the ocean, it tends to affect, unless we're talking about sort of large scale marine pollution, if your ship crashes, it pretty much just sinks, you know? It doesn't break into a thousand pieces that then crash into everyone else's ship, just to, to give one example. So yes, I think the analogy can be a little useful, but outer space really is different. The consequences of what you do in outer space can, uh, can last for a long time in terms of debris or in terms of there's some unique places, 
right? There might be unique landing zones or unique resource opportunities on the moon um, or asteroids. And if you screw those up or if you use them or whatever, um, those can have consequences that don't just affect you, but affect other people, other countries for years and years to come. So we've developed the law sort of in its own way. And mm -hmm. that's why we really are trying to take it slowly, not rush to make new rules, you know, not to sort of freak out and say, oh my gosh, there's all mm -hmm. these new actors. Quick, let's write a bunch of new rules. I think we are trying really hard to recognize that we don't know what rules we should write yet. So we're in a situation now where we're doing our best with the rules we have. We've actually managed pretty well, and we do have a thriving commercial space sector in the United States. So we don't want to do anything that would, that would put that at risk. Mm -hmm. uh, but recognizing that as, as the sector develops even more, there's going to need to be some additional development of standards, maybe by the industry itself even, to sort of figure out how we continue operating there uh, in a sustainable way. You know, kind of following up on that, a lot of our bodies of law, and especially things like law and economics, are kind of based on these paradigms of the commons and externalities. And I guess without that kind of rooting in that sort of metaphorical situation, I think it becomes pretty difficult. I mean, do you have any sort of analogous metaphor that we can use that we can start to build upon kind of economic and property rights? Metaphors are great. Uh, they're certainly fun to play with. But... Um, I think what we try to do is focus on the engineering and the science as much as we can. Right? Lawyers love to play with metaphors, and lawyers love to say, this is like that situation I dealt with before. And we all do it, and it's just something humans do. But every time we get a chance, um, we go to the engineers, and we go to the private sector, or the national security actors, the people who are really doing it, and say, you know, not just what is this like, but literally what are you doing? And we try to get a sort of a technical grounding in what's happening and build the rules and interpret the rules from there. Um, so, I, so I try, I'm sure I can't, but uh, I try to stay away from, from you know, that sort of yeah. analogy. It's, pr it's probably yeah. a good thing too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> metaphorical language can be pretty dangerous down the line, especially when you have <laughs> precedent based off of it. Yeah. But kind of along the same lines, um, so you kind of mentioned, you know, you're looking to industry, looking to private actors. So do you see the role of government and state actors in developing space and space technologies as taking a backseat to private industry in the future? No, I think it's just going to become more collaborative over time, right? Um, we have things like the International Space Station, right, which was clearly governments, it's international, so it's multiple governments working together. Now there's commercial, um, well, let's, we even now have a mixed situation, honestly, in the International Space Station. There's um, one company, a US-based company, has um, a module on the ISS now that launches nanosats. Hmm. So even now, we're starting to see this sort of mixture of an international activity with a, a small private sector component. And there's, of course, companies that proposed, as I said earlier, habitats in, in orbit. Or even potentially, you know, maybe partial or, or some form of privatization of the ISS itself. That's just one example, right, in sort of in the space station world. But I think when you talk about colonization or even communications, I think you're just going to see more and more public and private stuff all mixed in together, right? Because outer space, even though we're getting better and better at it, it still is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. So if someone develops a good platform, a good launch vehicle, or a good orbital platform or a lunar base or something, it's hard for me to imagine that they're just going to say, well, this is just private or this yeah. is just government, <laughs> right? There's just, there's just not enough players in the game, mm -hmm. frankly, for that to be a reality. Great. Well, that wraps it up for us. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. 
Uh, I know you, you work for the State Department, so you probably can't tweet or maintain a Facebook page, but uh, is there anything that you would recommend for our listeners to follow um, in terms of other resources where they can find out about space law? Yeah, if you're interested in space law generally, um, a great place to poke around is the um, United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, UNUSA, but if you just Google United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, you'll come to it. Um, great folks, they have some great space law resources up there. Um, and of course, if you go to the State Department website and poke around and search on there, you'll find space things too. Um, and then, of course, I'd, I'd say you know, look to the National Space Council. Um, they've had one big meeting so far. I think they're going to have <laughs> another. Maybe by the time this this podcast is posted, they'll have had another. Um, and so that's where sort of the, the high level of U.S. policymaking is going to be happening. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Nick Calcaterra and me, Tony Beadle. We want to give a special thanks for today's guests, Gabriel Swinney, the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, and Berkeley Law's Space Law Society. We provided links to these organizations in the show notes in case you want to read more about them. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for a show, please contact me at beetle at berkeley.edu. That's B-E-D-E-L at berkeley.edu. The views expressed in this podcast by hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. This podcast is intended for only academic and entertainment purposes. Don't get legal advice from a podcast. Talk to a lawyer.